Uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're continuing our look at going through the book of Acts. And today's passage is really, really long. It's about, about 60 verses. But I'm not going to read all 60 verses. So I'll save you that. <laughs> the, what I love about this passage, though, is just uh, the, the interesting context of what happens here. Because well, I'm sure you might be familiar with this scene, but I just love what happens because... In the verse immediately prior to our passage, which is Acts 6-8, and Acts 6-7, we have this really interesting fact of what's going on in the New Testament church. I'll read it for you, Acts 6-7. It says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So, as we have seen throughout the first six chapters already is... As we've been seeing already for the first six chapters, that there has just been success after success after success. After the day of Pentecost, people have been coming to the church and it's just been growing and multiplying. And even here, we keep getting those, those grand words as increasing, as multiplying, and things are happening. And so you would, it would seem to reason then that this flourishing, this success of this ministry would just only continue, Right? That, that God is intent upon his church to blossom, to keep growing, and so there wouldn't be any problems, there wouldn't be any complications. He wouldn't want to do anything to mess that up, right? Well, in fact, just the opposite happens. Something very important happens in this next couple verses, all through the end of chapter 7, that completely sort of shifts... The entire outlook of this church and the entire outlook of the New Testament church at Jerusalem. And that is the, it is the trial of Stephen. So Stephen is first introduced in this chapter. This is the first time he's mentioned in verse 5 where it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. This is what Charlie talked about last week. about He was one of the deacons chosen in the church to help things run more smoothly and whatnot. And the Lord quickly blesses Stephen and blesses his ministry. Look at verse 8 of Acts 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So he's doing lots of things. Great things were being accomplished at his hand. And it soon draws the attention of these men called the Libertines, as they're called here. Or it's also called the Freed Men. These were guys that were part of the Jewish diaspora, which is an old history thing that were. They were dispersing the Jews throughout all these nations and stuff. So these men engaged in a confrontation over Stephen. They, they were hearing rumors about what he was teaching, and they thought that he was actually teaching against God, cursing God, and cursing God's law. And so they're putting him on trial, basically, for this. A dispute uh, breaks out in verse 12. And, they, and so a crowd is roused again. So these, these, these freedmen, these libertines, they, they rouse a crowd and they end up impeaching Stephen. And they even, this is so ridiculous, they use false witnesses. Look at verse 13. And they set up false witnesses which said, This man seetheth, excuse me, I can't say that word, seetheth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. That holy place it means the temple. And it says, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So again, they're charging him. They think that, that, that 
that this Jesus guy and that this Stephen guy is continuing this sort of this cultic thing that they would destroy this temple and destroy the Mosaic law and all those sorts of things. And so they're putting him on trial and they have these false witnesses. And then what begins in Acts 7 is Stephen's sort of rebuttal. He's given, he's given the opportunity to sort of explain himself. And I love what he does because from Acts 7, 1 through Acts 7, 53, we, we get this long sermon, this long sermon of Stephen. And I love what he does because it's not what we do. It's not what I would do. Surely, it's not what I would do. If I were on trial, I would try and look for a way to sort of explain myself to these guys by like, no, you, you misunderstood me. You, you were just hearing rumors or, or whatever. But he doesn't do any of that. It, it, you know, he doesn't do any of that throughout all these verses. He doesn't look for a pardon. He doesn't look for an excuse. He doesn't try to make an excuse for what he is teaching or what he is proclaiming. Instead, for the next 50-odd verses, he launches into this grand narrative, this lengthy discourse on Old Testament history. He goes from the very beginning. He starts with Abraham, and then he goes through the story of Joseph, and he goes through and he mentions Moses, and he mentions the law, and he mentions the temple, and he, and he mentions all these things, and he goes from scene to scene, and as he moves, I would feel, if I were a part of this council, like, what are you doing? We know this. I'm sure they were probably a little bit bored as Stephen is going through this and he's trying to, he's explaining all these things. And you don't, and we're not even really quite sure of what he's doing for all these verses. But he talks about Joseph and he talks about Moses and he refers to the law. And I think it's, it's interesting that Stephen never backs down from the accusations. Instead, he talks right to them. He's, he's talking right to them. He's saying, yeah, those things about destroying the temple and, and those things uh, about throwing out the Mosaic law. Yeah, that's true. They already happened when you killed that guy, Jesus. Remember how he said that he and then three and you build up this temple and in three days it shall be destroyed. And I was talking about Jesus. Remember how he said that he's not come to, to eradicate the law in Matthew 5. He's, he's come that the law through him might be fulfilled. He's saying it's the whole point is Jesus. He says Jesus is the temple of God, the place where God and you guys, man, can dwell. And he keeps saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, satisfying all the demands, all his demands for you. So Stephen is openly speaking to the very things that he's being accused of. And he brilliantly takes these guys through the story of Redemption, the story of the history of Israel. And I think it's, it's only at the end, so at verse, let's see, 52-ish, 53-ish, where we really sort of realize what he's been doing this whole time. We sort of realize that he's, he, he's using this story of Israel as sort of a counter-accusation against this council. And so he says in verse 51, excuse me, Verse 51, Stephen says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. I love that retort. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. This is a cutting remark. He's basically saying that you are just like your fathers. You have missed the point. And they are cut. They are cut to the heart, as it says. Look at verse 54. It says, when they had heard these things, 
all these things that Stephen had said, they were cut to the heart. And it says they gnashed on him with their teeth. Literally, that means they were grinding their teeth in rage. They were just seething with fury at this, at this man, this Stephen, that, they, that he would sort of lump them together with their fathers. And so, no doubt, they're shaking their fists. And by way of the sermon, though, Stephen is just basically making the argument that you have misunderstood God's story. You've misunderstood the larger story of the Bible, and even with that misunderstanding and with your rejection of Christ, you have just misunderstood everything. You've misunderstood your own story and where you fit into the larger picture. Stephen is basically saying, because I know, your, because I know Jesus and because I believe in Jesus and because I understand what Jesus was doing, I understand you better than you do. See, what Stephen knew, knew and what we know is that the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, what, what Stephen takes them through, all those things weren't just a bunch of stories compiled together at will. They weren't just a bunch of events or they weren't just a bunch of facts. You, your Old Testament isn't just a grouping of, you know, uh, glorified Aesop's fables. That's not what they're there for. They're not there to, to, to teach you just little morals that you can take out and, and help you be better or whatever. They were telling a story. It's a narrative. It's telling a grand story that is pointing you to something. Or I should say it's pointing you to someone. He under, Stephen understood and we understand that in Abraham and in Joseph and in Moses and all those other stories and the prophets and all those things, they point to and they give us flashes and glimpses of the hope of Christ, the Messiah. That's what they're all leading to. That's why Jesus, when he's on the road to Emmaus, he says to the disciples that, or those two disciples there that he would teach them all the things about Christ. Or Philip does the same thing and later on in Acts, or I think we might have already touched on it, in Acts, I can't remember where it is, where Philip is on the road with the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, and he takes them through Isaiah 53, and he says, see that? That's pointing to Jesus. And he teaches them all things of Christ. So you see, what Stephen is saying to this council is still true for us, that the story that we're living, the life that we're living is misshaped and incomplete and totally mistaken if it doesn't have Jesus at the center. And see, what this council had done, they had made it all about them. They had made it about them and their desires and their wants and their needs. But the, without Jesus at the center of our story, we've got the wrong story. And Stephen's words here, these words are really just like a like a, like, a, like a divine intervention, sort of. But God is using Stephen to sort of jolt these guys awake and say, you've got the wrong story. You're missing the point. It's not about this temple and this place. It's about this person that you just killed. It's not about this law and these rights and all these things. It's about that guy you just murdered on a cross. And he even says that to them, to their, to their faces. See, this... They made the story all about them and like their ancestors, they had missed the point that Jesus is the true and better Lord of our lives. And he's the one who completes all of our stories. I'll even say more than that, by Christ's own death on the cross, he rewrites our story. 
He rewrites our story from one of condemnation to one of glory. And that in him, when we make him our Lord, he rewrites our story, the end of it. And that's the gist of Stephen's story here. That no other Lord can fulfill us like Jesus does. He is the true and better Lord of our lives. Now, I want to use this example. I think that you've heard it before. Uh, have you ever heard that Tom Brady interview from a couple of years ago? You may have heard this, this interview before. I think it's really fascinating because I think it gives a really good insight and glimpse into the heart of man. Here's Tom Brady. You know Tom, every, everyone knows who Tom Brady is, I hope. Or if you don't, it's okay too. <laughs> uh, Tom Brady, he is probably, if not the greatest quarterback of all time in NFL history. He has four Super Bowls and countless, I don't know how many MVPs. He has money out the wazoo. He has a very beautiful wife. He has children. He has lots of homes and cars. He has all this success. In an interview, he gave the 60 Minutes. Listen to what he says. Why do I have three, now four, Super Bowl rings? Why do I have all these rings and still think that there is something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I, I reached my goal and my dream and my life. Me, I think, gosh, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. That's coming from the very lips of a guy who, from the outside, we would think, has it all. And he's saying, there, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. And I would say, yeah, exactly. That's the point. If you make your story all about you and your success and your fame and all things that are about your needs and your desires, you will only end up exhausted. You will end up enslaved and you will end up dry and you will end up like Tom Brady, always looking for something more. And I would say he's exactly right. There's more to life than cars and money and girls and fame and success because God put something in your heart. It's called he put eternity there. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. That phrase there, he hath set the world in their heart, literally means he put eternity into the heart of man. So that, so long as he is not seeking eternity with his life, he is not pursuing the right story. And on top of that, he will never be satisfied. There is a God-sized hole in the heart of man that can only be filled by, you guessed it, God. And that's why, as long as we are pursuing some other story, pursuing some other life, other than the one with Jesus at the center, we will always be dissatisfied. We will be like Tom Brady, looking for something more, even when we think we have everything. And that's the point of Stephen's sermon. He flips the accusations on him back onto his accusers. Because he knew how far off base they were from knowing God's story. You see, the story Stephen tells is the story of the Bible. The story about Jesus' death on the cross. The story that recounts the millions of ways that God meets us in our fractured and in our filthy state. The story of the Bible is really the story about how God perpetually cleans up our messes. 
Have you thought about that? God, that God continually comes down and cleans up the very messes that we make. The very mess that we put ourselves in. See, this is what makes your religion, the Christianity, different from any other religion in the world. Christianity is the only religion where the God who insists on the demands comes himself and fulfills those demands. He's the only God who comes down to us and brings heaven down to our level, so to speak. If you, if you believe in Baal or any other God, Muhammad or whatever, they will always make demands and demand that you get better before you commune with him, before you do anything for him. But guess who we serve? We serve Emmanuel, God with us. No other religion has a God with us type of God. Only believers in the gospel, in the Bible have that. And that's what we're about to celebrate, right? At Christmas, we're in Advent, so to speak, and we're celebrating the incarnation of God. That God literally becoming flesh. God coming down and taking on humanity. The most insane thing that anyone could ever think of is the idea that God would become man. And the, that miracle alone is worth, I would say, a lifetime of Christmases. The idea that Jesus would come and, and, and make a way for us to have a part in his story. Because that's what he does. You see, our sins, our monstrous sins, you could say, required nothing less than the steep stoop of deity to secure our deliverance. And we can even say that this, this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation that we are celebrating right now, is what the, our, your whole Bible is pointing to. It's, it's pointing to this. God coming down. It's pointing to Emmanuel. A God who specifically seeks out sinners for the purpose of showcasing his grace and his glory. And that's the persistent theme throughout Israel's story. And that's the persistent theme throughout our story. And that's the persistent theme that Stephen was trying to get a hold of them. That you're missing the point. You're making it about you. And when really it's about Emmanuel, this guy you just killed. And see, we know that God works from the opposite he, his uh, um, pastor has said this before, that his economy is upside down where the last is first and the least is greatest. And the incarnation is all we need to have proof of that. Because here we have a God who comes down to us. Just like I said, he doesn't say, hey, climb up to me and then you will be saved. He says, no, I have come down to you that you might be saved. That's unlike any other religion in the world. And that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what we are believing in. That's what we are hoping in just now. That God uses opposite manners, opposite ways that we would think to fulfill his purposes. Just think about what happens here. Stephen preaches this message and then he's immediately stoned to death. And right after that, an even more great persecution happens on the church. We'll get to that next week in Romans 8 by this guy named Saul. He takes out a lot of Christians in the beginning of Romans 8. He is on a rampage against the gospel. So this would appear that God is, is not fulfilling his promises, right? But it's through the mess of Stephen, through the mess of Stephen's death, 
that we have an even greater catalyst for the flourishing of the New Testament church by the conversion of a guy named Saul, who turns into Paul, who wrote about 40% of your New Testament. So through that darkness, through that grief, through that confusion, God was always working. That's why we can, that's why we can celebrate times like what we're going through now. Christmas, that God works through darkness, he works through all the opposite ways we would think he would work, and he brings about hope. That's what Stephen was saying, and that's what your Bible says. That make Jesus the point of your story. Let's pray.